Good morning. The scripture this morning is from 2 Samuel 6, um, verses 1 through 23. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the Lord and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord had blessed, has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and, that, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent of David that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovered himself before the eyes of the, his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome. I, I'm really glad to be here and to have been welcomed by you. Um, as you probably worked out from my accent, I am not born and bred in Perth. Uh, I grew up under the shade of Table Mountain, um, and then Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, that's where I, I lived most of my life. Uh, met Dallas, my wife, got married, had kids. And then the Lord had other plans in mind, and uh, before I know it, here I am, and we've been here for uh, five and a half years. And so it's been a wonderful blessing uh, to be able to uh, share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, maybe it's a little of a background before I, I uh, went into the ministry. When I was, um, after I left school, all I wanted to be was a graphic designer. I loved cartoons, still love cartoons. Um, it's great having kids, because you have an excuse to watch Pixar movies and uh, go to the cinemas, and no one thinks that's weird. Um, and uh, and I, I, that was where I was gonna go, cartoon illustration, I wanted to do that kind of movie making, all of that. And so I studied graphic design, um, and, uh, and then the Lord had other designs. And I, I thought, I, as an introvert, I would just be hiding behind a computer all day, just doing arty kind of things. Uh, turned out that the Lord wanted me in front of people, um, and as an introvert, that was quite an experience. Suddenly, after three years of, of studies, I, the, the following year, I find myself preaching to five, six hundred people and thinking, how did I get here? This is not, this is not what I, I, I set out to do. But, um, but that's, uh, that's, that's just in a, a brief sort of nutshell, some of the things that happened in my life. So I want to have a, a look at this passage that was just read to us uh, this morning from 2 Samuel 6. And, and the question I want to ask is, what does it mean to worship God? What does it look like when we worship Him? Kevin DeYoung uh, put it like this. He says that so often when we talk about worship and what it means to rejoice in the Lord, we, we end up asking the wrong kinds of questions. We say, well, what do I like? Or, or what would non-Christians like? Maybe we design our services around that. Or, or maybe what do the people in my church really like? And when we do that, we end up missing the central question. And that is, how does God want to be worshipped? Because you see, God has told us in His Word, the Bible, how He is to be worshipped. And while there's a whole lot of places we can go to, uh, this is just one passage that helps us to touch on one aspect of what it means to worship God. And it connects for us the, 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 uh, these two ideas of rejoicing and reverence. That to worship God, at least in part, means to rejoice with reverence. Or as Psalm 2 puts it and, and joins these two ideas together, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And, and you might be saying to yourself, but how does that work? I get the rejoicing bit, you know, uh, often my experience of coming to church or, or, or whenever I've uh, seen people who say they are worshiping the Lord, there's a lot of rejoicing, there's a lot of singing, there's a lot of joy. And that's right and proper. But how does fear fit into that? It seems almost like the opposite of rejoicing. How can, we, how can we serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling? They seem like they should counteract one another or cancel each other out. And that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, but before we dive into this chapter, which will help us to understand the connection 
between uh, rejoicing and reverence. I just want to take a little step back and just fill you in on where we are in the Bible. And the first thing to note is that it's obviously in the time of King David. He's the main character who pops up in this passage. And uh, a King David was a king of Israel who lived a thousand years BC, around there. Uh, he was living at a time in Israel when they had settled into the promised land. Uh, David had just recently been anointed as their second king. Their first king, Saul, had died in battle. That's at the very end of 1 Samuel. You can read all about that. And then David was anointed as king. And the first thing he does in chapter 5, after he's anointed, is he marches on to Jerusalem and he defeats the Jebusites who'd been living there the whole time. Jerusalem wasn't part of Israel until David defeated the Jebusites. And then he set that city up, Jerusalem, as the capital city. Uh, the capital city where, where uh, of course, the fortress would be built and all the kinds of things that would come later. Um, and so it was called the City of David, as you'll see even in that chapter, in chapter 5. And then the other thing that David does in that chapter is he goes off and he defeats the age-old enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. And he, he defeats them in such a powerful way that they'll never really come up again against the Israelites in the same way that they used to uh, taunt them before. And so now, as uh, David begins to settle down in his new capital city, the enemies that have been taunting them have been subdued. What does David want to do? David wants to bring the ark to his new capital city, the ark of the covenant. What is the ark? Well, it's described for us there in, uh, in chapter 6. Uh, it's uh, called in uh, chapter 6 and verse 2, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of the heavenly armies who sits enthroned on the cherubim. What is the ark? Well, essentially, if you've watched uh, Indiana Jones, you probably know what the ark is. It's a gold-covered box, and, uh, and it's not to be confused with that big ship that Noah uh, jumped into, but to be fair, both of them are box-shaped, and, uh, and they at least had that in common. But this ark is, as we say in verse 2, called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned in the cherubim. This ark represents God's throne. It's a picture of his rule amongst his people. And it was also at the heart of the sacrificial system. In Leviticus, we, we learn that uh, on one day in the year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in behind the curtain. Uh, he was the only one who was allowed to go in there at that time, and only once a year. And they'd offer a sin offering on the lid and uh, on the ark and in front of it. Uh, what is more, also, the, the ark we learn in the book of Hebrews, the ark contained, uh, it was a box, so it had things inside it. And one of the things it did have inside it were, was the law that Moses had received on the mountain, the tablets, the stone tablets of the law. And so if, you, if you're looking for a great alliteration for what this ark is all about, well, it's, it's about God's rule, God's reconciliation, and God's revelation. Rule, reconciliation, revelation. It communicates to God's people that God is the king, that he alone can forgive sin, and that he is the one who reveals himself to his people. They don't have to figure out who he is by their own means. He has come down to them to show them who he is. And that's really important because in those days, to approach the ark was to approach God himself. 
And, and two dominant attitudes come out of this passage, which we've already hinted at. Two dominant attitudes that should inform the way we approach God when we come to Him in worship. The first is reverence, and the second is rejoicing. And both must always be present. There's a danger in having one without the other, and that's what we see in this chapter. You could kind of split the chapter in two, and on the, the first half, you'll see the danger of rejoicing without reverence. And in the second half, you can see the danger of reverence without rejoicing. So let's look at it quickly together in our time we have this morning. Firstly, rejoicing without reverence from verse 3 to 10 especially. And the chapter, of course, opens with, with uh, David setting out to bring the ark to Jerusalem on the back of a cart. And verse 5 tells us there was music and joy and laughter and dancing and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Um, so lots of loud noise, lots of great things going on, but in a split second, all the music stops, and suddenly there is a tragedy. One of the oxen pulling the cart stumbles. The cart has the ark on the back of it. It slips, and Uzzah, the servant of the Lord, reaches out to steady it, touches the ark, and instantly he is killed, and everyone is shocked, and, and their joy gives way to sorrow. And, and at first, David responds in a way I'm sure all of us would have responded uh, if we were in that circumstance. In verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David was angry. Why would God do this? Surely, uh, he could see that Uzzah was just trying to help. He just wanted to stop the, 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 the ark from falling into the mud. Uh, surely, God is just being a little bit like overreactionary? Why so severe? Why so arbitrary? But then on further reflection, notice what verse 9 says. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He feared the Lord. His anger turned to fear because he realized in that moment that God cannot just be approached any way we would like to approach Him. God is pure and holy, and we are not. And so David left the ark there at Obed-Edom, the Gittite's house, while he and his entourage went back to Jerusalem empty-handed. John White says this. He said that David had to realize that Uzzah hadn't been unjustly treated. He deserved death a thousand times over, just like every other sinner on this planet. And yet God, in His mercy, allowed His just judgment to awaken Israel in general and David in particular, to something they all badly needed to know. That God is God, and humans are human, and that God's presence in their midst is a privilege the human race may, never deserves and must never take for granted. You see, there's danger in our rejoicing without reverence. And one of the ways to test yourself in that is to ask yourself, what is it that I most fear. What is it that I most fear? We live in a, a world full of fear at the moment. Uh, there's the fear of the pandemic. There's a fear of uh, what is the government going to do in response to the pandemic. There's a fear of our freedoms uh, being trampled on. There's a fear of, of political things going on all around the world. Is China, oh, we're all going to have to learn Mandarin soon. 
Uh, is China going to take over the world or not? Is the, what's going on in the U.S.? And we, we, we read all these headlines, all these things pop up on our phones and in our social media accounts, and we say, what's going on? And we're full of fear. And while, as Christians, we might have quite different views and, and land in different places on some of these political issues, the danger is that we can often fear these things more than we fear the Lord. And when we do that, we will always be in trouble. We'll always not have the right perspective on things. We'll always be unsettled. We'll never be able to really look at things clearly. Michael Reeves, in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, says that our fears are like an ECG reading. You know, the, the, in the hospital, when they plug you up to the machines and you can see the boop going along. But he says that our, that our, our, our fears are like ECG readings. They're constantly telling us the state of our hearts. They're showing us what we truly love. Because the thing you love most is the thing you will fear you will ever lose. Or you fear you will never get it. And so if you, if you love relationship and, and being in a relationship with other people, that's a good thing. But if you, if you fear that you will lose that relationship one day and, and you don't know what to do with yourself, that shows you where your heart really lies, where your treasure is, where your priorities will be, where you will spend all your money, where you'll spend all your time. It, your fears tell you about what you love. They tell you where you look for security and significance and self-worth. So what do you fear? Well, only a fear of the Lord will free you from all the fears that are around us. Not a, not a sinful fear of the Lord of, of His judgment, but a godly fear of God's goodness and His majesty and His holiness and His grace and His righteousness. That will free you from the fears of this world if you truly fear the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, great uh, preacher, once put it like this, that Believers adore and worship the living God with a joyful, tender fear, which both lays us low and lifts us very high. For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's gold throne than when our spirit gives itself up to worship him who it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight." That's the kind of fear that will drive us to the Lord and to keep His commands, a, a reverence that our rejoicing needs. But there's an equal and opposite danger, and that is what the second half of this chapter shows us, a reverence without rejoicing. And we pick that up from verse 11 onwards. And uh, as you may remember, the ark had got parked in uh, Obed-Edom, the Gittite's house. I, I always wonder to myself, was Obed-Edom a friend of David or an enemy of David? Because this, this ark has just killed somebody. It's, it's radioactive. And he says, well, can we park it in your house and see what happens next? And uh, kind of let your family sort of hang around and see, you know, will you live? Will you die? Uh, it, it just kind of seemed to me like, what was David on about there? But there, anyway, what does happen is that Obed-Edom, the Gittite, is blessed. And David hears a report of this, and it encourages him to take another shot at bringing 
the ark to Jerusalem. And this time you would think, well, knowing what he knows from before, how dangerous this ark is, how dangerous God is in all his holiness, that David would have kind of ditched the loud noises and and music and dancing and tambourines and all of that and gone for something a little bit more slow and solemn and quiet and dignified. Surely, isn't that what God wants? Isn't that what he, how He wants us to, to behave in His presence? We, we need to be very quiet and very um, reverent. Surprises, though, that's not what happens. If you read the passage, you'll see actually there's more rejoicing. There, there's dancing. There's all sorts of things going on here in this passage. It's louder than before. And that's what a true fear of God will bring. A, a trembling before the goodness and the greatness and the glory of an awesome an awe-inspiring God who shows His steadfast love to those who fear Him. But there's a really important difference in the way that David now brings the ark to Jerusalem. And I wonder if you've noticed uh, the difference between the way he, he uh, tried the first time around and the way he tries the second time around. Something is missing. Did you notice it? Uh, in verse 13, this time, there's no cart involved. No oxen carrying the ark on the back of a cart. No, it's people now carrying it on their shoulders. And that's because David has learned to follow God's instructions on how the ark needs to be transported. The first time around, he didn't consult God's word, but this time around, he does. Back in uh, Exodus, when the ark was built, it was fitted with rings, and you, they, they slotted these long poles through them, and it was lifted up by the Levites onto their shoulders to transport the ark when they were in the desert. And so there, were, there was very clear instructions given in God's Word and exactly how the ark needs to be handled, how it needs to be transported, um, and this time around, David follows the instructions. And... Uh, and and uh, there's joy and singing and music and dancing. And, and verse 14 is a, a, it's an interesting verse there. Like even David, as he danced before the Lord with all his might, he was wearing a linen ephod. Uh, he had stripped off his kingly garments and he was dancing before the Lord, showing, I think, in many ways that the true king has arrived in Jerusalem. David's just a servant. But the king, who's represented by the, the ark of the of the covenant has arrived, and all attention is on him, not on David. But verse 16, the ark of the Lord comes into the city of David, and as they pass the royal palace, one of David's wives, I don't know, when it was read out, he said, Michael, I always feel Michael sounds, I always say Michal, but anyway, whichever way you want to say it, Michael, Michal, the, the daughter of Saul looked down on this procession, and she looked down on this procession, saw David dancing before the Lord, and, and verse 16 is quite strong, uh, the, the, the response that comes up in her heart. She looked at David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Makes you wonder, what, what did she fear most, that it would affect her heart that much? And after David had set the ark in the tent, uh, that he had pitched for it, this was before the temple had been built, that would only come later, and David's son Solomon, he would build the temple. Uh, but as it was pitched in the tent, David returns home, celebrating, he's passed out gifts to all sorts of people. Verse 20, he comes home to, to uh, bless his family, and, and uh, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, 
and she bites his head off. One of the first, well, one of the, the, the not the first, but one of the, the great examples of sarcasm in the Bible, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. I don't think she was meaning uh, that he was being honored uh, on that day. Well, that's certainly how she felt. She holds him in contempt. Because in her mind, a king should not behave like a servant. She's concerned about the outward appearances, about the proper decorum, about the royal dignity. And this king has just laid it all aside like that. That's, that's horrifying. He's parading about with the servants. And David says in verse 21, well, actually, I am a servant. I'm a servant of the Lord. And humility is wholly appropriate. David wasn't putting on a performance for others to notice. He was rejoicing before the Lord. And it's clear that in the last line of the story, David and not Michal is, is uh, blessed by God. She was so concerned with what the neighbors might think that she would not join in Israel's rejoicing. And instead, she became resentful and bitter and was cursed by God. Here is the danger of reverence without rejoicing, of doing all the right things, following through all the things and ticking all the boxes, but having no real heart for God. We can get so wrapped up in, in busyness around the church, getting involved in church services, procedures, and decency, doing the things the right way, and we can grow so cold in our hearts. There's no joy before the Lord. We shout and cheer for our country as we won a bunch of gold medals in the Olympic Games and in the Paralympic Games. But what about our Lord and King? Do we feel the same way about the gospel? W.G. Blakey said, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? Does the presence of God ever move us? What this chapter teaches us is that the way God will have us worship Him involves both rejoicing and reverence. We can't have one without the other. But how do we strike the balance? How do we, how do we get both of those things? How do we rejoice with trembling? And the clue in this chapter is in the ark. There's no ark today. Uh, it's not lying in a, in a warehouse somewhere at the end of Indiana Jones. It's, it's just been lost in antiquity. So how do we connect to God? If, if the ark's not around anymore, how do we know how to get in uh, touch with God in that sense? And the answer, of course, is through the one who fulfills what the ark was meant to signify. God's rule, God's reconciliation, God's revelation. The the scriptures say that's Jesus. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And he's the way of reconciliation, that he reconciles us to God by his death on the cross for our sins, paying for our sins in his blood, which we are going to remember as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment. It tells us he's the ruler 
He sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's our great prophet, priest, king. Far greater than a box of gold, far more wonderful, way more dangerous. So how do we relate to him? How do we draw near to this God who can destroy us in an instant and yet calls us in his love? And the answer is in this king's humility as he laid aside all his glory. For Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die for you and for me so that the sins that separate us from God, from a holy God that, that will lead to judgment, can be dealt with fully and finally forever. And understanding that will give us the balance we need. That on the one hand, as Tim Keller has always said, on the one hand we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But on the other hand, far more loved than we could ever dare believe. That's what the cross does for us. It humbles us because it's our sin that put him there. But it raises us up because his love led him there for you and for me. It's the cross that liberates us from sinful fear, the fear of God's judgment, but at the same time puts in us a godly fear, a, fear of, uh, a fearful adoration of our Redeemer. And the more that sinks into our hearts, the more we understand that, the more we grasp that, the more we will worship God rightly in the way He wants us to, with reverence and rejoicing to the glory of his name. Well, as I close, just one, one verse I want to, to uh, remind you with, Revelation chapter 15, which really pulls it all together. Revelation 15, uh, in that chapter, God's people who have been saved sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And, and much of what we've been talking about this morning is all pulled together in just these words that they sing. And I'll just read them out to you. Chapter 15, Revelation, verse 3. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are the God who is holy and pure and above all earthly powers, who lives in unapproachable light, and yet you have made it possible for us to have a relationship with you, not by, by compromising your goodness and your glory in any way, but in by sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that, that he came willingly, that he came out of love, uh, that out of love you sent him, that he died on the cross for our sins to make it possible for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for, for that and for the joy that that brings in our hearts. Our sins are forgiven forever. And we can, we can come into your presence, uh, that we can approach your throne with freedom and confidence. We need not fear you in that way. And yet, Lord, as we look at, at, at your holiness and your purity and your goodness, give us a godly fear that we would seek to live for you, glorify you, and honor you all our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.